morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. So glad you could be with us today. We all need clean water to live. And whether it's flowing out of your kitchen faucet or along a creek near your campground, we expect the water to be safe. But sometimes our water can make us sick. Waterborne diseases are a year-round problem across Minnesota, and a warming climate means that we're likely to spend more time in our lakes and rivers, which could raise the risk of infection. Bacteria and viruses aren't the only things lurking in our water. Chemicals called PFAS are in everyday items like nonstick cookware and cleaning products, and they are finding their way into our waterways. We're just now starting to understand the real health consequences of these so-called forever chemicals. So this hour, I am talking with guests about the quality of Minnesota's water and two new developments making news today, the PFAS lawsuit against 3M and the EPA's ruling to stop protecting millions of acres of wetlands. What is going on? I want to hear from you, too. Have you had a personal experience with contaminated water? Tell us about it. What questions do you have about the safety of drinking water or the water in our lakes and waterways? The phone lines are open, and here are the numbers you can call. Call us at 651-227-6000. Again, that number is 651-227-6000. You can also call us at 800 242 2828. Let me introduce my two guests here in the studio with me. We have Trisha Robinson. Trisha is an epidemiologist with the Minnesota Department of Health and supervises the Waterborne Disease Unit. Good morning, Trisha. Nice to meet you. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me here today. And next to Trisha, we have Matt. Simsick. Matt is a professor in the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, and his research focuses on how and why organic pollutants end up in the atmosphere and in the water. Hi, Matt. Good morning. Hi. Uh, Lots of questions. But first, I just want to share, you know, I think that many of us uh, don't spend a lot of time, enough time thinking about the safety and the quality of our water. We sort of take it for granted, particularly, I think, those of us living in Minnesota. So, Tricia and Matt, first, I I just want to know, how do you describe the overall quality of the water that is, you know, coming out of our taps uh, and the water that, you know, that we're playing in and lakes and rivers here? Uh, Tricia, would you go first? Yeah, no, I think that we are incredibly lucky here in Minnesota. We are, after all, we're the land of 10,000 lakes. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have uh, really great, safe drinking water. We have um, really, uh, you know, water all around us to swim and recreate in. But then, of course, we have to think about all of the things that we can do as Minnesotans to help keep that water healthy for all of us to continue to enjoy. And hopefully those are things that we can talk about today Mm -hmm. um, as kind of, the things that we can all do um, to help, you know, for all of us to stay healthy, not just this summer, but in the summers and, you know, kind of year round um, as we go about our lives and for all of our, you know, children and those to come. So we have to protect the water yeah. and recognize the threats. Absolutely. Right. And, and and Matt, how do you describe, you know, when people are like, Matt, you're the water guy. What do you think? <laughs> well, I'd like to echo what Tricia said. I, I totally agree. Uh, we're very, very lucky here in Minnesota that we have very clean water. Um think about it, we're upstream of everybody, right? So Mm, um, Mississippi starts here, it flows down. Um, And so echoing what you said in terms of of keeping it clean, we have a responsibility not only to the people here in Minnesota, but to everybody else that's downstream of our our water that we use. All right. So Tricia, you're there uh, uh, at the Department of Health. You're an epidemiologist. What are some of the common waterborne illnesses that uh, we see in the water across Minnesota? 
Yeah, so actually the most common waterborne illness that we see is uh, diarrheal illnesses. And so uh, it's kind of gross to think about. What did you say? Diarrhea. Diarrhea. Okay, that's yep. what I thought. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so people mm-hmm. get that when they're swimming and recreating in the water by drinking the water. And so when we go swimming, we're not supposed to be drinking the water, but that happens. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, people unintentionally drink the water while they're swimming. And actually how people get sick most commonly is because other people are in the water when they're sick. And Mm. so it's not from kind of these external factors Mm -hmm. of, you know, animals or other things like that, but it's actually from other ill swimmers Mm -hmm. going in the water while they're sick. Uh, And so (laughs) just it spreads. No, this is this is real talk, right? So it's pretty easy to get sick if you're in contaminated water. Yeah, if you swallow the water. Right. It is. Right. And, uh, you know, this time of the year in the summertime, I often see stories about um, algae blooms. And, and so where are we likely to see those? Yeah, so algae blooms, they, we can have those all across the state. And, um, you know, those, uh, you know, are a real phenomenon. We and, can, and what are they? I guess we should tell yeah, people Yeah, so are. absolutely. So an algae bloom is something that looks like um, kind of a spilled green paint. Mm-hmm. or pea soup. Mm-hmm. And so if you ever see those, our best advice is that we say, if in doubt, best keep out. And it's not just for humans, therefore our animal friends too. Um, dogs often are less discerning about uh, the water that they will go in. And so it's really important that we keep our dogs out of that water too. And uh, not just swimming, but you know, we don't want them at all wading or anything in that water as they can get very sick um, and actually die from that too. And then and there are different types of algae blooms. There's a, a blue algae bloom that, that is particularly problematic. So they're, they're called, it's blue-green algae mm-hmm. is what it's called, but they're harmful algal blooms mm-hmm. um, overall is what they're called. They have a cyanotoxin in them. Um, and you can't just tell by looking at the bloom whether it is harmful or not, which is why we tell people to stay to out. To stay away. Yeah, right. to stay out. And then uh, do you report those? Is that helpful? Does the Department of Health appreciate when people identify things and report it? So we do not, uh, we take reports if people or animals are sick and we uh, look into that. Um, but there is a bloom watch um, that is uh, part of our pollution control partners and um, EPA have an online bloom watch tool that people can go to and look and sort of kind of crowdsource mm-hmm. the uh, blooms that might be out there. And I've reported on in the past, you know, sometimes I know uh, the state has had to, to close a body of water because of the possibility of, of some type of an outbreak. So what is going on when that happens? Yeah, so if there are illnesses associated with a body of water, um, we investigate those and that might result in a body of water like a lake being closed for a period of time. Um, I think people are often more used to seeing a lake being closed due to routine monitoring. Mm-hmm. Um, say that, uh, so as part of the Department of Health, we run the Lake Superior Beach Monitoring Program and monitor the beaches all along uh, Lake Superior coast. And um, oftentimes when our uh, e. coli levels uh, exceed the normal levels, then the beach has to be closed. And so it's important. I think people often hear then the beach is closed due to E. coli. It's not because people have been sick. There are there are hundreds of kinds of E. coli. And fortunately, there are only a handful that make people sick. And so that E. coli that people are hearing about kind of all summer long of beach being closed due to E. coli is just a precaution because we have found the contamination in the water that could make people sick. It doesn't mean that uh, people have gotten mm-hmm. sick or that 
um, you know, that it is even would make people sick. It is a precaution because that bacteria has have been found in the water. And that we see that the summer outbreaks that go- there. Yeah. So it's not an outbreak. It's just um, a precautionary measure because that contamination has been occurred and has been found. Just a fecal indicator, if you will. Oh, you've got lots of good words. Good words, Diarica, I know. Diarrhea, fecal. Yeah, just, okay, you know. let me go talk to Matt here for a minute. <laughs> Matt, <laughs> now, we keep seeing headlines about PFAS. And, I, and the first I was like, am I saying that right? The, the PFAS. What are, are PFAS? Uh, why are they a growing concern to public health, Matt? So first of all, PFAS is a term for what we now recognize as thousands of chemicals that are fluorinated. Um, mm. It stands for per and polyfluoroalkyl substances, which is a big, long word. We used to call them um, perfluorochemicals, PFCs, um, mm-hmm. but we realized that not all of these chemicals have all of their hydrogens replaced with fluorines. Um, the reason they're an issue um, to begin with is there's only about maybe 12 or so um, naturally occurring fluorinated organic compounds in the, in the that occur naturally in the environment. And so in terms of that, biology doesn't know what to do with it. Um, and so the, the toxicologically, they can, they can um, do some interesting things both within a cell, within an organism, um, and even in the environment. So one of the things that makes them really interesting is that that fluorine, carbon-fluorine bond is super strong. This is why they get the term forever chemicals. They don't break down. They don't break down biologically because biology's never seen them. They don't break down chemically because that bond is so strong. So what what common items are, are made with PFAS? Like what do I have in my house right now? Right. So because these com- compounds had such interesting properties, they were used in just a myriad of applications. Everything from waterproof makeup to uh um, Yeah, exactly. To uh, food wrappers to firefighting foams. Um, and I've and, seen popcorn bags. Yes, yeah. If yeah, if if I can if I can stress one thing <laughs> only today, don't eat microwave popcorn. You can just take a brown paper bag, put popcorn in it, put it in the microwave. It pops just fine. Why? Uh, What's the problem with the microwave popcorn? Well, the so, bag. So the whole idea of using these for food wrappers was back to that carbon fluorine bond. That, that that fluorinated compound likes to repel both water and oil. This is an odd thing mm-hmm. for a chemical to do. Either it likes water or it likes fat. These kind of don't like either of them. So it repels both of them. And so you can have, um, you know, your, your French fries and the oil doesn't get in your lap or your hand because it doesn't go through the bag. Um, same thing with your popcorn. You can have the oil and the butter and everything in there, pop it out and it doesn't come out of the bag. Um, so back to the brown paper bag, you can just add your salt and your butter later after you've popped your popcorn. Okay, so the PFAS are in some of these in the coatings, com- yeah, in the coatings of the bags. Yes. Okay, and then and then how does that then become part of the, the water supply? Well, everything we use gets disposed of, mm-hmm. right? Either through our body into the waste stream through your sewer or into a uh, the garbage can out into a landfill. And so, because these were used in so many different um, applications, they're present in all of our waste streams. Um, if you look. The only place where it's sort of directly applied out in the environment would be something like firefighting foam. If you have a fire, you spray this foam on there, it goes away from the fire site. But that has to go somewhere. Again, these things don't break down. So they'll percolate down into the groundwater, contaminate our groundwater. They'll get into the storm drain, out into our surface waters. They'll contaminate it that way as well. And it makes us sick. And so what are the... 
what do we know about the illnesses they can contribute to? Yeah, great question. So I, I like to tell people that PFAS are weird. They, they, they behave differently um, as chemicals, as I've already mentioned, in terms of repelling water and fat. They behave weird moving through the environment. And by weird, not what we expected um, from what we knew of how chemicals move through the environment. They also are weird when they're inside an organism. So most of the... Weird is it unpredictable? Yeah, unpredictable. Thank you. Mm. That's a much better term. <laughs> like, yeah, you just don't want it. Right, right. So um, while what, what we used to study, PCBs, DDT, you know, those kinds of things, we know that it accumulates in the fat of organisms. These chemicals don't. They'll bind to proteins. They'll associate with cell membranes. They'll do all kinds of different things. And so because there's a myriad of um, uh, uh, toxicological endpoints and mechanisms, trying to predict what might end up happening to an organism is very, very difficult to do. So then we rely on folks like Tricia, who are epidemiologists, to look at, okay, what kind of um, effects are we seeing and how are they associated with these exposures? So some of those things and where we're finding this uh, um, um, creep up is in um, children. So we're seeing um, decreased efficacy of vaccines, increased ADHD, things like that. One of the mechanisms we do know that the PFAS do is, is they alter the lipid content of our blood. And we know that lipids, fat, is really, really important in fetal development. So my greatest fear, I, I'm just a chemist. I'm not a toxicologist, so I'm, I'm mm -hmm. going on a limb here. But what my fear is where we're going to see um, issues with these chemicals is in fetal development, both both um, babies. In, in, yeah. While, yeah. While a woman is all, pregnant, all the, yeah, fetal yep, development. Yeah, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so being exposed in utero and then having effects later on in life. Um, because it altered some sort of development, and this is why you're a researcher. You're, you're that's right. Well, I'm I'm trying to figure out I'm trying to figure out how they move through the environment and try and keep mm -hmm. them keep people from being exposed to them right. so that we don't have to worry about that. Trisha, uh, the look of concern on your face. I would like to share with the state uh, as they listen. When when I, we hear the word PFAS, what do you want people to know about about them and, and the dangers that they pose to our health? Yeah, so I focus on infectious diseases, mm -hmm. and so. I am probably not the best mm -hmm. person to speak uh, on that part. Um, but as a consumer, you know, I worry about that and what I can do best as a consumer. But the uh, idea that this is something that does need to be studied and research, I mean, it, it's, it's true. Yeah, There's absolutely. a concern. It yeah. is a public absolutely. health concern. All right. Uh, Matt, we found out yesterday that a proposed $10 billion settlement with 3M is uh, involving PFAS. It's moving forward. A group of uh, 22 U.S. states and, and territories dropped objections uh, to the deal. The settlement um, is a result of hundreds of lawsuits filed against 3M claiming the company polluted drinking water with toxic chemicals, um, making headlines across the country last night and today. What do you think uh, of this? What do you make of this? Why is this significant? Well, the, the lawsuit was significant to begin with um, because we finally now have a proposed regulation for these chemicals or for a handful of them. Um, and in response to that, water treatment and wastewater treatment said, hey, we didn't make these things. We have to, to remove them because that's what the regulations say we have to do. You made these chemicals. You need to pay for it. Um, so because what we're if, – if I'm a wastewater treatment plant, my job is to remove organic matter, solids, and pathogens, not these chemicals that are in the part per billion, part per million uh, level. Okay. Same thing with a drinking water treatment plant. I'm trying to soften the water. I'm trying to 
uh, remove pathogens. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to you know keep it clean, pathogen free, so we don't have infectious disease through the through the system. I'm not I'm not designed to get rid of these micro pollutants. So if I'm going to be required to produce water that is meeting a, a level, the people who created those chemicals need to pay for it. That was the original uh, lawsuit. Mm-hmm. The objections that the 22 states had and ent- entities had was that one, they didn't think the 10 billion would be enough to cover what they're going to have to do because we don't have, um, we don't know the greatest technology for removing these in these situations yet. Um, secondly, they want, they didn't want to let 3M off the hook for any later um, uh, litigation. So that was their, their objections. I, I, I can't say why, um, they remove those objections. But it's moving forward. It is we'll moving continue forward. continue to yeah. watch this. I, I want to personalize uh, this a little bit. We have an opportunity to do that. I, I want us to take a moment to listen um, to Amara Strand. Uh, Amara was uh, instrumental in bringing national attention to the PFAS issue and actually uh, uh, getting a, a ban passed in the Minnesota House. Um, this is a, a young woman. Amara grew up in Oakdale, went to Tartan High School, uh, an area where the drinking water was contaminated by PFAS uh, produced by 3M. When she was 15 years old, she was diagnosed with a, a rare liver cancer. And Amara testified at the state capitol several times um, uh, in the past year, urging state lawmakers to enact a ban on PFAS. And we can take a moment now to listen to her earlier this year at a press conference, a news conference at the state capitol. Growing up, I lived in the 3M plume and attended Tartan Senior High School where I met many classmates that were also directly affected by cancer as a result of what we now understand these chemicals to be PFAs. When toxins in the environment hit a person's DNA at a particular vulnerability, a cell mutates, resulting in cancer or other serious illnesses. One of my cells mutated and cancer began to grow. Unfortunately, people being subjected to dangerous chemicals unknowingly happens far too often. It's a repeated offense that has festered in our land, water, and bodies for decades. And despite public knowledge of said environmental waste dumpings, little has been done to clean up or hold those deemed responsible for the deadly cause and effect that has robbed my community. We have all paid a high price due to large corporations carelessly dumping known toxic chemicals. However, we have yet to see public health repaid for the time, money, and the emotional turmoil inflicted by by these same chemicals at the expense of our lives. This is not just an individual problem. It's a community problem. And it's time for action to be taken. That was Amara Strand talking to Minnesota lawmakers about the devastating effects of PFAS. Amara died in April, just a few days before her 21st birthday. Um, Matt, what went through your mind as you heard this this young woman talk uh, about this, uh, this very personal story, her testimony? Yeah, obviously very heartbreaking. Um, one of the, the things I picked out was... was so true that that what we've done in this country with the 
not just PFAS, but the thousands of chemicals we're being exposed to is we're, we're constantly running an uncontrolled experiment on ourselves, right? So we're putting these chemicals out in the environment. We're all being exposed to them. We have no idea what they might do to us. And, and so, again, that's my, my goal is to try and reduce the exposure of, of people to these chemicals. The last uh, um, point that, that I wanted to, to echo that she said was, was the uh, cost. So often when we talk about, well, we just mentioned $10 billion, right? We talk about the cost to clean up. We talk about the cost to the industry. We never talk about the cost to public health of, of loss of life, of loss of quality of life. And, and that's until we actually put that into the cost of products, we'll never fully realize um, what these, these chemicals uh, um, and you said it's still too early, really, to really know how these forever chemicals will impact our health. Again, with an uncontrolled experiment, we're not just being exposed to PFAS. We're being exposed to lots of things. And so, like, when you ask mm. Tricia about the infectious disease, if these chemicals affect our immune system, that could make us more susceptible to infectious disease, right? So all of these things are, are happening in concert. And so to, to narrow any one specific cause to to, an, to, to a single right. person's uh, disease is very difficult. So what role does the Department of Health play in any of this in terms of research or monitoring or, or taking reports, um, uh, Tricia? Um, for PFAS, so there are a number of colleagues that I have in our environmental health department, and they study and, um, you know, have a number of different um, kind of areas of expertise around that. But it is being studied by MDH. Yes. Right. Okay. Well, let's take some phone calls from our listeners. We're talking about what's in the water. Water we drink, water we spend time in outdoors and lakes and rivers when we're out there camping and hiking and trying to live our best lives. I want to hear from you too. Have you had a, a personal experience with contaminated water? Tell us about it. What questions do you have about the safety of our drinking water or the water uh, in our lakes and waterways? Call us at 651-227-6000 or you can call us at 800-242-2828. I have two guests, one from the Department of Health and one from the University of Minnesota School of Public Health. Let's uh, take a phone call uh, from Bridgewater Township. This is Kathleen on the phone. Good morning, Kathleen. What did you want to ask or share with us? Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate it. Mm -hmm. uh, I live in a rural residential neighborhood. Um, I have a shared well with my neighbors, uh, there's a second shared well and three other individual wells in my neighborhood. None of these are in the Department of Health um, well database. Um, the Soil and Water District in my county works with farmers, but not with um, households or neighborhood wells. Um, the Department of Agriculture does uh, drinking water testing. The DNR holds the uh, groundwater atlas for Minnesota. The MPCA is doing rulemaking uh, for water. Um, I read in the um, uh, recent EPA um, announcement about PFAS that municipal systems will have responsibility for taking care of of uh, problems like PFAS or lead or mm -hmm. microplastics or whatever the latest problem is, and that private well owners are responsible for their water. Um, 
I'm really confused as to how I get the information Mm -hmm. um, about what dangers there might be in my well water, whether it's nitrates or lead or PFAS or whatever the next thing down the road Mm -hmm. is. And Kathleen, and so far, like have you had any problems? Division. Have you had any problems so far? Or you just want to make sure you're up to speed on what's going on? I, if I'm responsible, I want to know mm-hmm. how I get the information and how I protect my drinking water. Got it. And how all my neighbors do. Got it. Kathleen in Bridgewater Township. So, uh, 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 Trisha, first from the, the Minnesota Department of Health, uh, what do we need to know about uh, water wells and, and what... Uh, what responsibilities um, homeowners have and and what MDH is doing to monitor and and make sure that drinking water is safe. Yes. So, um, you know, when people talk about their private wells, then, you know, private well owners do take responsibility for their private wells. Um, But there is a number of different information on the MDH website uh, for private well owners and um, things they can do to uh, help monitor for their wells or different things they can test for and places that they can have that testing done um, and other things to, um, you know, help uh, so there's a service themselves. provided. So you could reach out to the Department of Health, um, Kathleen could, to find out, because that's sort of her question, what does she do to make sure it's they good? Could, there is a well-management uh, section at the Department of Health. They could reach out to them and help, you know, help direct them to uh, appropriate resources. Mm-hmm. And it's your understanding people do that. They do ask for help. They want to know. Yep. And they can help direct them to their local public health or different places that they might need to reach out to. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, uh, Matt, what are you what are you seeing when it comes to well water and, and people in, in more rural communities? Yeah. Um, Tr- Trisha put the nail on the head. I mean, it, it's a private well. It's it's It turns out to be their responsibility to make sure that it's clean. But there are resources to, to go after to try and get it tested. It, it's going to be most of the times it's going to be at the cost of the, of the well owner. Mm-hmm. Um, now she, she did mention the department of agriculture. They are going to be, um, monitoring for nitrates and nitrites. Um, that is one thing that the, uh, the department of agriculture does. And so, um, but in terms of PFAS and microplastics and these other things, um, they're, they're not. And mm-hmm. so, um, when, when the EPA sets a regulation, that's for municipal water supplies not for uh, private wells. Let's take another phone call. Uh, this is uh, from Dave. Uh, looks like uh, Dave is calling from Minneapolis. Good morning, Dave. What did you want to ask or what do you want to share as we talk about what's in our water and the quality of our water? Hi, yes. I was walking around Lake Harriet as uh, <laughs> this program came on. Uh, first of all, I'd like to thank our guests for um, the service that you do to Minnesota that's, I think, quite under underappreciated mm-hmm. and uh, very important. So, um, one of the uh, w- uh, one of your guests uh, said that the uh, we we are lucky in Minnesota that we live upstream of everything, but that doesn't mean that we necessarily are not polluting things ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm it be, uh, I, the question to me: uh, What's the current state of the Minnesota River? Um, a few years ago, a number of years ago, uh, there was a lot of news about how polluted the Minnesota was, but uh, haven't really heard very much about it recently. Have we cleaned hmm. things up a lot? Um, what's what's the current pollution state? Okay, um, and I'm not sure if, if either guest has any particular expertise about the Minnesota River, but uh, anything that you can um, share with Dave about that particular river, Tricia? So unfortunately, I can't give you kind of the 
answer you're looking for. Um, but uh, I can tell you we haven't had any outbreaks in the Minnesota River in terms of people getting sick from it. But that doesn't uh, answer your question, unfortunately, about kind of the water quality answer mm-hmm. um, in the Department of Health. We're not the best people to speak about that, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, so um, the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency is in charge of determining that our our water is drip swimmable, drinkable, and, and fishable. And so they'll have information on the Minnesota River. I know there was a lot of research by some of my colleagues looking at the amount of soil runoff going into the Minnesota River, mostly from ag fields and things like that. And so um, they worked at the Science Museum of Minnesota looking at, okay, how much of this suspended sediment in the river is from bank erosion versus um, field runoff. Mm-hmm. And so there are people looking at this to try and minimize, again, the amount of uh, material that's going into the into the water. And so th- that can be as simple as having a, a, a buffer between an ag field and the river. So green strips, so places where you're not plowing right up to the edge of the river or not tiling the, the, the field and, and dumping it directly into the river, filtering that through wetlands or other um, uh, um, grassy mm-hmm. areas so that, that it keeps it clean. And I have a question about rivers in general. You know, a lot of people right now, particularly these, these final few weeks <laughs> of summer of really warm weather, people out canoeing, kayaking, swimming, and or camping by rivers, um, uh, maybe a camping weekend or hiking weekend. Uh, Trisha, what are some good safety tips uh, for uh, people when they are outdoors and experiencing, um, you know, all of the great things that water has to offer, particularly if you're going to be, you know, using drinking water in those environments? What do you want people to know about uh protecting themselves? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, kind of this time of year, especially, we see a lot of people that get out kind of in the back country, if you will. Kind yeah. Of in the, yes. <laughs> uh, getting out there uh, up north, especially, we have mm-hmm. a lot of great backcountry trails and places. And so people see that water that looks really pristine so and wonderful. And pretty. Oh, yeah. um, but mm-hmm. that is deceiving, if you will. Um, there, we, we have diseases in that water, especially if people have heard of Giardia before. We see a lot of people get sick with Giardia after what being out in the beach. Is that a diarrhea? Again. I knew you were going to say yeah, diarrhea. I, know. I knew that. I know. And, <laughs> okay. and this one happened, you know, if you get sick with Giardia, you're getting sick for a few weeks of diarrhea. So you, oh you really don't want that one. Um, but so the thing, the really important thing is that you need to treat your water when you're in the backcountry. You do not want to drink it directly from that stream or river or anything like that. But will I get sick just from getting it? In, I'm not intentionally drinking it, but maybe just getting it in my mouth or eyes Wait, or so, while from swimming, swimming um, in it. Does that make me you sick? You could. Yeah. If you unintentionally ingest the water, you could. But the thing is, when people are in the backcountry, they drink that water. They use that. There aren't Right. You know, wells or other things right. around them. So they have to have a drinking water They're source. refilling their water bottles. Yes. Right. So it's important that you either boil your water or you filter and disinfect that water. And so just taking that extra time and, you know, kind of planning ahead before you go on that camping trip or on those day hikes and making sure that you're either bringing the appropriate Bring amount it. of water in with you or if you're going to be using that backcountry water while you're out that you're appropriately treating it. Mm-hmm. You don't want that diarrhea. I know. Oh, my gosh. That's <laughs> just smiling politely. Okay. You know what? We have many more questions and uh, other listeners on hold on the phone lines that we want to bring them in as well. As we talk about what's in the water, what do we drink? What do we play in? Let's go to Lanesboro and uh, pick up a phone call from Bonita, who is calling us. Or actually, you're in Holt Township near Lanesboro. Hi, Bonita. Good morning. Thank you for this important program on water quality. Mm -hmm. In rural 
counties like Fillmore, our city officers recognize that PFAS are serious, but don't know what they can do to protect the public health. Mm. In addition to the PFAS, in our southeastern Minnesota's poorest karst country, surface water runs off and goes straight down our numerous sinkholes to our drinking water aquifers. And rising nitrate levels are an urgent problem with consequences that include blue baby syndrome and cancers. Current policies are not working. We hear the recommendations that private well owners are responsible to get their wells tested. Okay, the question I have is, if a well owner does get the test and the results come back poorly, what financial help is there available to get safe drinking water? Thanks for taking my call. Oh, thank you, Benita. You can hear the concern, and Benita's, Benita's done her research. Um, so she's asking uh, uh, about uh, wells, uh, nitrates, uh, concern about nitrate levels uh, in the water. And um, uh, Tisha, do you want to talk first just about uh, what we, we know about that? Um, so I think Matt is probably the better person to talk about that, okay. actually. Go ahead. Yeah, so the nitrates and nitrites come from agriculture. So when you fertilize a, a farm field, you just like your fertilizer you put on your lawn has NPK, nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. And in a farm field, most oftentimes that nitrogen comes in either as ammonia that directly applied to the field or uh, manure. That breaks down in the uh, in the soil to nitrates and nitrites. These are extremely um, uh, concerning, especially as she mentioned for blue baby syndrome. So, what is blue baby? Syndrome? So, what happens is, in an adult, if you get if you drink nitrate nitrite, you have enzymes that will detoxify it and get rid of it. Babies haven't developed those enzymes yet, and what ends up happening is it it uh, um, binds to or uh, interferes with hemoglobin, so oxygen-carrying capacity of the blood. And so the the baby basically suffocates internally because the oxygen is not getting out where it needs to go because of the nitrates and nitrites, and they turn blue. That's where the, the term mm. blue baby syndrome comes from. And that's why the Department of Agriculture monitors for nitrates and nitrites because that's, that's, a, that's a pretty a severe um, uh, consequence. Um, she also mentioned uh, cancers. So even though we have the enzyme to, to keep it from uh, affecting our, our, uh, the oxygen-carrying capacity of our blood, adults could still um, have uh, um, toxic effects from uh, high levels of nitrate and nitrite. In terms of what you do about it, that, that's, mm-hmm. again, a great question for people at the Pollution Control Agency and, and Department of Agriculture. Um, we really do need to figure out what we're doing upstream of all of these things. And, and she, she's also right in terms of the, the geology of southeastern Minnesota make it very amenable mm-hmm. for these contaminants to get very, very quickly. talk about the water running. Yeah. yeah. So Let's if you remember um, maybe uh, six, seven, eight, ten years ago, um, when we had all that flooding down in the eastern, um, southeastern part of the state, mm-hmm. um, people were monitoring the groundwater, and it came up tens of feet within the first hour of this this flooding. Mm. If you remember that when the football fields and the high schools were all flooded and everything down there, the, people saw within minutes the groundwater coming up. And so that means that that, that water is going quickly from the surface down into that, into that aquifer. 
Um, what, what can often be done is in some cases, what you want to do is maybe go to a deeper well so that you get um, uh, um, into a, a, a different aquifer that may be What's an isolated. aquifer? So an uh, aquifer is groundwater. Okay. So the way the, way the uh, uh, geology works is you have layers, okay? Mm-hmm. And you might have a layer that's filled with water, and then you might have a layer that's impervious to water. Um, mostly impervious. And then you might have another layer of water. And those we call each of those individual layers an aquifer if they're filled with water. So if you do a surface aquifer, a very shallow well, you're going to get very recent rainfall. If you go very, very deep, you can go back hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of years before that water that you're pulling out of the, the ground was mm-hmm. in, as rainfall. Okay. So sometimes the, the easiest, um, uh, um, resolution is to just do, use a deeper well and get into a deeper aquifer that may not be contaminated then with nitrates and nitrites. And we keep hearing other government agencies, state government agents involved in this. Uh, Tisha, you're with the Department of Health. You've referenced the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency. You've referenced the Minnesota Department of Agriculture. So there are several different state agencies who all are looking into this issue of water safety and water quality. Correct. Yes. So we have a number of partners. You know, you mentioned Pollution Control Agency, Department of Agriculture, um, DNR, you know, lots of players involved that uh, have a role in water safety and kind of helping to keep our waters clean here in Minnesota. All right. Let's take uh, another phone call uh, from uh, Woodbury. And um, this is Dana, who's on the phone. And, And Dana, I'm told that you're Amara's mother. You're Amara Strand's mother. Yes, this is Dana, and our last name is pronounced Strandy. Strandy, forgive me for for saying that. Okay. Amara Strandy, you're her mom. So first, uh, our condolences on the loss of, of your daughter. Thank you. I wanted to ask a number of questions, um, simply because Amara was so deeply concerned about her community. Her experience in her high school was so many other young people who... Um, we're struggling with cancer, mm-hmm. and um, whether that be they themselves had cancer, which seemed a higher than, uh, you know, I would say normal number of students to have cancer, and who had um, parents who had cancer as well, or siblings. Mara started a group at Tartan High School called Teen Cancer Alliance to help kids have a place where they could just talk. Um, so she was really concerned about her community. And there's a couple of questions that that leads me to. Um, One is, could a study be done of uh, the occurrences of illness in the East Metro area in comparison to other areas that do not have the level of PFAS that we have? I know there's a study recently been done in California that was very helpful, and I'm just wondering if we might be able to do something like that here. More studies. My second qu- mm-hmm. question is um, when it comes to uh, the PFAS, um, I just think of like the University of Minnesota is just such a tremendous university for research, and um, would there be a way to encourage um, PhD students? to study the effects of PFOPs on health um, right. and also to help us understand how the aquifer of uh, contaminated water in the East Metro is moving. As I've just learned that a well 
that is northeast of where we think the aquifer and how the water is running, that this well in Lake Elmo is now contaminated, one that we never thought would be. Mm. And it doesn't make sense. So Dana, I, I want you to hold on. I want you to hold on for a moment, and I'm, I'm grateful that you called in. Uh, if you missed the beginning of the show, we we heard from um, Amara. Uh, Amara grew up in Oakdale, went to Tartan High School, um, uh, Oakdale, an area where the drinking water was contaminated by PFAS produced by 3M. And when she was 15 years old, she was diagnosed with a rare liver cancer. Uh, Amara testified at the Capitol uh, several times uh, this year, urging state lawmakers to enact a ban on PFAS. Um, and we also know that. She died in uh, in April, just a few days before her twenty first birthday. And her mother on the phone uh, right now, Matt. Uh, her mom is asking about more research. What what can be done? Yeah, great question. So the the first two questions in terms of could there be a study of occurrence at Tartan and and could PhD and and then the second part could PhD students be involved? Mm-hmm. Th- that's generally how we we run our research is is that we we do um, employ PhD students to do a lot of this research because they're going to mm-hmm. be the next you know public health professionals and, and, and researchers doing this stuff. I, I do know that, that, that some people looked at some of the, of the data. This was involved in the, in the, the, the state lawsuit uh, against 3M. Um, I also know that there was an effort by um, a, either a state representative or senator, and I apologize, and I'm forgetting her name, from Park um, uh, Cottage Grove area, who tried to get legislation through to have the University of Minnesota relook at all of the, the, that, that data um, just to, to make sure that, that we didn't miss something. And so um, if, if, if people want to reach out to her, or reach out to your local uh, representative to say, look, we need to do this, um, uh, it's, it's a priority. Um, in terms of the East Metro uh, uh, groundwater plume, that, that, that's one of the, the most uh, uh, convoluted plumes I think I've ever seen. Um, and and the, the Meaning folks, what? Well, you have so many different sources, you have so many different flow paths, and you have different... Um, um, uh, uh, hydrologic things going on, water moving in, 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 in different ways. So in up in uh, Oakdale, you had the um, uh, a dump um, that where barrels were there, and now you'll have PFOS. Um, in near Lake Elmo, you had the Washington County landfill where that was mostly PFOA. Then, of course, you have the Cottage Grove plant that was producing these things. And so you have lots of different sources, hot spots in there. And in fact, you <laughs> what makes it even more... Um, uh, convoluted is that you have you had efforts of trying to move that water away from some of these areas um, in terms of of channelizing it, piping it. There's a pipe that goes from there's a connection from Demontreville to to Jane to a pipe that goes under Black Eagle um, and Lake Elmo, and yet Lake Elmo is contaminated. So if we if we put a pipe underneath it to keep it from getting contaminated, how did it get contaminated? There's a lot of unanswered questions in that area. I'm going to pause you right there because sure. I want to take this phone call before we run out of time. Uh, we have on the line right now State Representative Jeff Brand in St. Peter. And um, uh, Representative Brand, I'm told you that you're the chief author of the PFAS ban uh, passed by um, the legislature last session. And, and what do you want to share with us in the remaining minutes of this conversation uh, about PFAS? Hi, good morning, Angela. Thanks Hi. for taking my call. Um, just wanted to, to first of all, thank you for elevating Amara's voice once again. Um, you know, when you um, are working on a piece of legislation as, as big as a non-essential use ban of a toxic forever chemicals uh, family of chemicals, you run into a lot of opposition. 
And unfortunately, a lot of people tried to discredit Amara's voice at the Capitol by saying that her she was getting paid for her testimony, that she really wasn't sick, that her family members were also getting paid for that testimony, which was absolutely not true. That was their voice. Uh, they came to the St. Paul of their own volition to, to speak up and to stand up for everybody else who's kind of dealing with some, um, you know, toxicity in their bloodstream. Uh, most of us have it in our bloodstream just because of our daily lives and the, the great exposure to PFAS that um, Fortune 500 companies have, um, have, uh, have exposed us to over the years. I will say that people have flown in from other states all across the country and even internationally to Minnesota to try to stop House File 1000 from being enacted this year. And I think that uh, we have to be vigilant as Minnesotans. We have to ask our legislators to, to do more to protect us. I think that's the expectation is that a legislature like ours is going to protect us from these things. But honestly, it took a took a couple of sessions for this to actually um, happen, and we're not out of the woods yet. Of course, um, I'm sure they'll next? be mounting some yeah. sort of opposition. We just have thirty year. seconds left um, here, uh, uh, Representative. Sure. Uh, what is next? What's happening now? What can we expect to happen next? Well, next year, I hope that we can have a great conversation about biomonitoring. That's a piece of legislation that Senator Tujan and I are carrying in the legislature. But also just, just to do more, to show that we care for the constituents that we serve across our state. And hopefully we can do that in a bipartisan fashion. This year, unfortunately, it really wasn't. It was largely not bipartisan in the House. It was in the Senate. Um, I do appreciate the members who broke rank with their, with their uh, GOP colleagues to vote in favor of the bill. And I'm hopeful that that means that we can do more next year. All right. Yeah, I'm going to have to leave it right there for now. But um, I want to thank our guests who uh, really helped uh, elevate this conversation and help educate us more about what's happening with our water, the quality and the safety of our water here in Minnesota. We've been talking with Matt Simsick, a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. His research focuses on how and why organic pollutants end up in the water and the atmosphere. Thank you, Matt. And also to Tricia Robinson, a supervisor of the Waterborne Disease Unit with the Minnesota Department of health. Thank you, Trisha. This conversation was produced by Matt Alvarez. Be safe, everybody. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at nine. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.